Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. We're carrying on this adventure into a subject that I think for many people in many ways is fresh or new. And um, it would be true to say that if you've walked with Jesus a long time, you may have heard about some of these things before. But a number of you are coming to me and saying, you know, I didn't know about that or I didn't understand that or the value of that particular thing. And I must confess to you that... um, for me, this is a bit of a challenge. I'll tell you why it's a challenge, because I have the attention span of a gnat. You know, if we're starting a series, I can, I can promise you this, probably week two, maybe even week three, I want to move on to the next thing. I'm a futurist. I'm always thinking about the next thing. So this is the longest I've ever done a series, and we're actually in week six now. Can you believe that? Some of you, I know you're saying it's, it feels like week 12 or week 15. I know. Don't be cruel. It's hot, it's hard enough, but we're only on week six. And, and what my aim in this series was, is not to just preach at you, but to give you some understanding of how you and I can become fully immersed in the life that Jesus promised us. Because that life is not automatic. I think sometimes Christians have what I would call a Peter Pan theology. It'll all pan out in the end. That somehow God will supernaturally circumvent your decisions and your difficulties and your obstacles and your obstinacies and somehow work without you. But he doesn't do that. God chooses to subject his, the advances of his kingdom to the partnership he has with you. You're involved whether you want to be or not. And, um, and that involvement means that we must understand how we can accommodate the very heart and desire of God. And that is to see our lives flourish. Is there anyone here this morning who doesn't think that God wants them to flourish? Is there anyone here this morning who's been waiting a while to flourish? Is there anybody who's almost given up hope in flourishing? Come on, tell the truth, you're in church. Yes? And that's the problem, you see. We kind of get accustomed to living in the mediocrity of a spiritual life that doesn't seem to produce the very thing that Jesus promised us. And you know, I, in the earliest, a bit loud this now, guys, can you turn me down a bit? In the early service, I heard the Spirit of God speak to me, and this is what he said. He said this, tell my people that I have declared that they are to be let go. There's a wonderful story in the Old Testament When Pharaoh tries to stop the Israelites from moving into the purposes and the plans of God. And God eventually intervenes and says to Pharaoh, which is a representation of of the enemy and the one who brings um, suppression and repression and oppression to people. He speaks to him and he says, let my people go. And you see, I'm saying that to you today because some of us have become so accustomed to living in the lack of freedom, that we have stopped believing for it. Some of us have been so kind of going around the mountain of the Lord 500 times, God, bring breakthrough, and breakthrough hasn't come in a particular habit or an aspect of your personal life. Some of you have been praying for all manner of things to happen and hasn't come. And here's the problem. You have begun to partner with the disappointment of what hasn't happened and not partner with the appointment of what can happen when we start to walk with God in victory. Start to walk with God in the supremacy of Christ over all things as we partner with the Spirit and the Word to make sure that His plan and His purpose for our lives comes to pass. You are not a casualty to this unless you want to be. You have the victory in Jesus' name. I'm just going to wake you up this morning. You have the victory in Jesus' name. And you cannot afford any level of passivity. The minute you start to become passive, the enemy will take advantage. The minute you start to believe the disappointments are more real than the appointment, the enemy will come in like a flood and he will destroy whatever is good in your life. You are easy pickings to the enemy if you are partnering with anything other than the victory that is yours in Jesus Christ. You stand the right side of the cross and all is available to those who walk with Jesus. It's hot, but it's not as hot as it's going to be in hell. We 
we're standing today in the victory of Jesus Christ, this life that Jesus promises is available to anyone who will position their heart before him and make room and space in their life for him to do what he wants to do. And the spiritual disciplines give us these capacities the very things that Jesus did to keep himself connected to the fullness of the Father we have been talking about for a number of weeks. And today I'm going to talk about one that I find particularly difficult, if indeed I haven't found all of them difficult. I want to talk to you today about the discipline of solitude. It's probably not going to get a headline in the Christian Weekly. It's not something as Pentecostals we talk about too easily. But when you look at Jesus' life, you see that he practiced it diligently. Jesus practiced solitude regularly. Now let me ask you a question. Do you want the life that Jesus offers you? Give me a wave. I'm not going to go home unless I get some activity from you. Come on, you misery gutses. Give me a wave. Do you want the life? You cannot get the life that Jesus offers you unless you live the life that Jesus offers lived for you. Those two things are part of the same story. So if it's good enough for Jesus, and Jesus found it essential in the way he lived his life, that I believe with all confidence this morning that it's good enough for us. It'll work for us. But solitude is a fearful thing. Let me tell you why. Because people are frightened of being on their own. I think right in the core of our being, because of the separation we've known as sinners from God, we have this terrible feeling that somehow, in some way, we will just be left on our own. And we hate the thought of that. And the thought of that drives us into activity, into all kinds of distractions that cause our lives to be full. We'd rather be in the crowd than be on our own. We'd rather be amongst the people than be actually available to God himself. Everybody nowadays has all kinds of things, don't they? Um, they didn't have them when I grew up. I remember vinyl. I remember vinyl records. When we used to learn songs, when I was a kid, I used to sing in my mom and dad's band. We used to learn them on reel-to-reel -reel tape. Is there anybody over the age of 50 who remembers reel-to-reel -reel tape? And then we progressed to cassettes. Is anybody old enough to remember cassettes? The greatest instrument for a cassette was a pencil. You could move it forward, you move it back. <laughs> And those blessed things always get chewed up inside of the machine. And then we progress to CD. Do you remember CD? Oh, I know you went out and purchased tons of them. And now we don't even have physical realities anymore of music. It's all somewhere on a cloud. <laughs> somewhere on a cloud. And, and the irony is it's become really popular to buy vinyl again. People are buying record players or gramophones or whatever they call them these days. Now, I'm not old enough to remember the one with the dog and the horn, okay? So stop judging, okay? But, but we're going full circle. Why are we so preoccupied with music? What is it about our lives that needs to be consistently stimulated? I feel that the enemy has done a number on humanity because unless there's loads of noise and loads of activity and something happening anywhere and everywhere with everyone... We don't feel like we're living life. And yet the reality is different. In spite of your iPods, your radio on the car you're not even listening to, conversations in the background that are happening on soap operas while you're trying to attend to your family, God is calling us to solitude and silence. He's calling us away from the carnage and the noise and the distractions to be with him. Jesus calls us, and here's the thing, I read something recently, with all of that activity, with all the social media, with all of the things that are happening, societal trends testify to this truth, that people feel more isolated, more alone, misunderstood than they ever have in the whole course of humanity. We're bombarded with every facet of communication, and we still don't feel at peace with ourselves. Now, I'm not as sharp as some of you in this room, but I am thinking about that a lot and thinking, I wonder if that's a tactic of the enemy. I wonder if he keeps us so preoccupied with all manner of things because he knows that if we ever allow ourselves to be still in the presence of God, we will discover some greater truths that will transform our lives. I wonder if this is in many ways a propaganda from the enemy 
We think we're missing out on life if we're not involved in everything. You know those people, they've got, you've got neighbors, they wanna be involved in everything. You know you're out in your garden and they have to say hello. Or you're getting in the car and they, have, they wanna be involved in everything. This is what I feel the Spirit has said to me today. Jesus calls us from loneliness to solitude. Loneliness is an inner emptiness and solitude is an inner fullness. So what is solitude? Is it just separating myself from the world around me? Well, that would help. But solitude, more than that, is a state of mind. It's a a posture of heart. It's a quietness inside of me. It's a stillness that resides over me. It's the abiding sense of being well with God. I used to love that old hymn. It is well with my soul, with my soul. That wonderful sense that where you and God are concerned, things are solid, things are safe, and things are secure. I believe Jesus lived from that place. In fact, as I've been reflecting on this, I recognize that in the Garden of Eden, as we look at the creation ordinance, we realize that the first day of the week, the first day where Adam got to live out all that God has accomplished was called the Sabbath. It was called a day of rest. And the Sabbath means that we take ourselves away from all of the activity that's normally in our lives, the responsibilities and all manner of things. And we spend that time in a place of solitude and rest in the presence of God. And here's what I believe we're being taught by the Spirit in these days, that we are not to rest from work, but we are to work from rest. And you see, when your heart is at rest, you will have a viewpoint on this world that is not troubled or indeed distracted by all of the things that seek to distract it. Wouldn't that be a wonderful reality to live in rest and to live from rest, to have this peace this abiding sense of the connection you have with God, so prevalent and powerful on the inside that no matter what you experience on the outside, it doesn't create a dent in it. When we live with that inner peace, we have no fear of being alone. Do you know why? Because we can feel that he's with us. We can sense that he's here. We have a knowledge and an expression and experience of the Prince of Peace abiding in the reality of my internal world. And the truth is this, that is how Jesus lived and that is how he invites us to live. Now, I'm like you, I like a lot of variety in my life. And um, anytime we ever go on holiday as as a family, Emily likes routine, Jane really just likes the sunshine and wants to be by the beach, but I like to see everything. I want to see all of the sights. I want to go to all of the shows. Is there anybody like me? Come on, tell the truth. You're in church now. I want to make sure that I'm getting everything out of it that I can get out of it. And I've noticed something as I've got older. I come home from a holiday more exhausted than when I went. I come home from a holiday and need a holiday to get over the holiday that was helping me get over the I think this FOMO thing, we're frightened we're going to miss something. The fear of missing something drives people to distraction and they are engaged and connected to all manner of things. But I believe Jesus models a different life for us. And this is the life I want to just talk to you for a minute about. If you have a Bible with you, go to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 11. Please take a moment to find it on your phone or actually in the Bible itself. And I wanted to just highlight a couple of things that I think for us in our thinking around this may be important. Now Jesus was 30 when he started his public ministry. And just before this chapter, we see him being baptized in the Jordan. And as he's baptized in the Jordan for the first time in the New Testament, we see the Trinity at work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit ascends and descends upon him. 
And the father speaks over him. And this is what the father speaks. And I want you to hear this before he does a miracle, goes on a mission, speaks to a person, has any connection with anything to do with the miraculous power that he's working in. This is what the father says to Jesus before any of that happens at this moment of baptism. He says, this is my son whom I love in him I am well pleased. Now pause for a moment and ask yourself the question. Haven't we for many, many years waited for God to say that to us? And didn't we fool ourselves into thinking that he would say, well done, good and faithful servant, when we had accomplished what he has set before us to accomplish? But the opposite is true in relation to Jesus. Because before Jesus utters a word, preaches a sermon, prays for a sick person, or raises a dead person, the Father's affection is a certain a reality where he is concerned. And in those few phrases, we see the affection of the Father towards his son, Jesus. Can I tell you today, this is one of the biggest lessons we need to learn this side of heaven. God loves you. Oh. If you never told anybody about Jesus, if you never prayed for anyone, if you never attended church again in your life, and please don't think about it. God loves you. He has always loved you. He will always love you. If you never did any great exploit for Jesus, or even read your Bible again, or even prayed to God one more time, right now, right here, as certain as I can be about absolutely anything, I know this truth. God loves you. His affection is towards you. Because God could never love you okay, according to how good you are. He set up a whole better system than that. The system was he loves you according to how good he is. And he is good all day, every day, and forever. And because he loves you, that should birth in you a peace and a security and a knowledge that this isn't about my activity. This is about my reality. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of the Most High. I have been called into relationship with him. He delights in me. His favor rests upon my life. Is it just hot or are you all indifferent? That is where we start from. That is how we begin our journey with Jesus. We begin with security. We begin with this certainty. God is for me. We begin with this clarity. His affection has been favorably placed and positioned towards me. We, we begin our journey with this absolute concrete platform from which to stand on, whether I get it right or I get it wrong. God loves and delights in me. Now Jesus, somehow in the economy of God's story here, needed to say those things over him. And I can see the reasons why, because things are about to get difficult for Jesus. And all of the things that the Father says are about to be challenged in this next passage. Let's read it together. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, I love the irony of Scripture, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God. Now look at that phrase. What has just occurred? All but a day before maybe. What has just occurred? This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. You see, when the enemy steals the clarity that we need about being sons and daughters of God, he begins to destroy and distort the purposes God has for our lives. We are meant to start from that place of rest, from that place of certainty, that place of confidence that God is forming. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread and Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, having to stand on the highest point of the temple. He says, if you are the son of God, there's that phrase again. 
Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command the angels concerning you, that they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Don't you find it interesting that now Jesus stepping towards the public manifestation of the promise God had made to him to bring his kingdom in all its fullness to the context in which he's living. He starts with solitude. He starts the adventure by retreating from culture. He starts the journey by separating himself from the noise of humanity. He starts the great, great expansive reality of God's pleasure and purpose for his life by positioning himself in a place where no one can see him and no one is there to talk to. Why? Why did Jesus do that? What was Jesus wanting to experience before he stepped into the greater exploits of God? Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work it out. You see, everything in Jesus' life starts from that place of being alone with the Father. He works from a position of rest. He doesn't rest from his work. Now, if this is good enough for Jesus, my question to all of us here is, why is it not good enough for us? You see, in a moment like this, if you're anything but honest this morning, you won't get this. But if in a moment where suddenly it's released upon you to fulfill your destiny, wouldn't you be running around talking to everybody and chatting about what it could look like and dreaming with your friends and you know, asking for prayer to be commissioned into all the great exploits God has for you? Jesus does none of those things. He goes back to being on his own with his father. And this isn't an easy place for him because he is tempted and tested by the enemy. Church, do you know who's keeping you busy? The devil. Do you know who's preoccupying you with all kinds of things? The devil. Because if you ever get this, if you ever just get this, you will realize something profound about it. God created you to live in stillness. He created you to be with him in peace. He called you first and foremost to intimacy with him before you do anything for him. This is your truest spiritual default to be in the presence of God. And as you are in the presence of God, when you are still, when you shut out all the other voices, you find him and you find his authority and you find his power and you find clarity because you can't get it when you're mixing with all of humanity. That's why this scripture is so vital to us. Be still. If you are just still, if you shut out the noise and the external things and just come to a place of stillness with God, you will know, and the word know there is the intimate interaction between a man and a woman. You will know that you know that you know that he is God. And who doesn't want you to know that you know that you know that he is God? Satan. So if it's good enough for Jesus to start his public ministry by 40 days in solitude and silence, you and I could practice a little bit some of this for ourselves. We might find that our lives take on a different level of authority. Go to Luke chapter 6 for me quickly. Now Jesus gathering people to his mission, understanding that God wanted him to bring into his presence certain individuals that God had predestined or planned would be part of the great adventure of taking the gospel into the highways and the byways. In Luke chapter 6 verse 12, we see as Jesus is about to pick these disciples, choose these disciples, it says that on one of those, Jesus, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying. Church, listen to me. 
I've been in ministry 28 years this year. I've sat in all kinds of committees and teams over those years. Some were good and some were just, well, boring. I've been in elders meetings and deacons meetings and team meetings. In this moment, as I look at this scripture, I think this thought, if Jesus was preoccupied with the crowds, he wouldn't have had clarity about the individuals that God wanted to bring to him. And what we need to remember, while Jesus is fully God, he was also fully human. He could have easily been tempted to get distracted by certain people or individuals around his life. He could have been stirred because someone had a particular level of charisma or another person had a particular gifting. Jesus, in his desire to do the Father's will, retreats from all of the interactions he has with certain people. And he goes and he prays. Why? Because he knows in his human condition, he could be tempted or distracted by other things. I believe he came from this moment with clarity from the Father about the individuals that he wanted to gather to his purpose and his cause. Is that how you make decisions? Is Jesus the first place you go to when you need to decide something? I fear not. Church is distracted by talent. You know, when we see a talented person, we give them everything. Their character may be really faulty and broken. Isn't that some of the reason why we have so many fallouts in the church? Somebody might be really charismatic. They're really good with people. They've got a great way with people. And suddenly we find ourselves caught up with that. Jesus does none of that. He's not led by his soul. He postures himself in the presence of his father. And he asks, who is it, father, that you want me to gather to this moment. Can you imagine if he'd missed Peter? The stories that we couldn't tell. Or John, the disciple Jesus loved. Can you imagine if somehow he got caught up in the natural way we all get caught up with other people? And I wouldn't imagine that John was the most obvious candidate. It sounds to me like he was a little bit of, a, of a, um, an introvert. But each one of those individuals... I believe in his time before the Lord in solitude and prayer, he had clarity about. So as he steps out into his world, he had an ability to look through the nonsense of humanity and call the people that Christ, sorry, the Father wanted to call to the cause of Christ. Too easy for us. I mean, this young man at the front, his name is Daniel. He's such a lovely boy. And when I was in KT, the very first Christmas Eve, I think it was, or New Year's Eve, he was on the front row. And, um, you know, if you've ever been to KT, it's full of high-flying people. And at that time, forgive me, Daniel, I'm not going to disclose your, your difficulties, but Daniel was living in a caravan on the side of a street in London. And not one of those people who sat on that front row could be bothered to speak to Daniel. They were too busy trying to get the right seat ready for the service that's about to take place. And as I was looking across the room, the Holy Spirit said to me, go and speak to this young man. And I walked over to him and shook his hand. He introduced himself. He's from Poland. Um, I'm not from Poland. So there was a little bit of a moment where we're trying to understand each other. And this is what he said. This is the work of the Spirit. He said, I have come here. What must I do to become a Christian? What must I do to become a Christian? Do you remember that night? Well, do you know, as a pastor, that's like 45 Christmases all in the one day. Do you know how long I've been waiting to hear that? What must I do to be saved? I've heard people say those things. And so I was able to pray with him, and he offered his life to Jesus. I could have gone to the man next to him that had a suit on. I could have walked to the lady three seats away from him that had the most glamorous hair I've ever seen in my life. You see, when God begins to pick people... He picks them from the place of solitude and silence. He's not impressed by the outer stuff. He sees the heart and he's drawn towards these individuals. Imagine for one second if any of the disciples were somehow missed by Jesus in his humanity. We would not have the stories that we identify with as people. Because those ordinary people did extraordinary things. Why? Because Jesus took the time to seek the heart of the Father in choosing them. And today... He took the time to seek the heart of the Father in choosing you. You're not here by accident. 
Come on. You're here by design. From the foundations of the earth, he knew you. In the wonderful center of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where peace manifests itself and glory is present, God spoke and you were formed in your mother's womb. Nothing is casual in God. I love this. I love the thought that Jesus, like us as human beings, could have got this wrong. But he did what was right. He went to be with the Father in heaven. And as he prayed and contemplated and thought and silenced and stilled himself before God, God began to bring about the strategy. Do you know, some of you are looking for breakthrough and you're running here and you're running there and you're running to this person and you're running to that seminar and you're running to this outpouring. Be still. Be still and you will discover that God is present and when God is present, he will begin to speak and he'll minister to you. And you will have a, a clarity and a strategy that you could not get from talking to anyone else in the room. Because God knows the end before the beginning. Hello? Go to Matthew 14 for me, please. Matthew 14, verse 13. Jesus receives the news of his first cousin, John the Baptist's death. And he does what he seems to be familiar in doing. It says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to where? A solitary place. And look at this. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Jesus had to get in a boat to get away from the people. Now, I don't know how preoccupied you are with people but you know, sometimes you just have to get in a boat to get away from the people. Can you hear me? Sometimes you just have to do something radical to stop the noise. And it's not that anything about that is not good for you. It's good to have family. It's good to have friends. It's good to have a social life. I'm hoping one day, by the mercy of God, I'll have one. All of that is good, but the, what is better what is more profoundly life-changing is not hanging out with people. As good as they are, they're broken. What really will change and transform your life is hanging out with Jesus. Being with God will utterly transform the way you see yourself, the way you think, the way you act, and the way you respond to the world around you. Jesus, in a moment of personal crisis, could have so easily asked for the sympathy or the affections of those who were his friends around him. He chose not to. He chose to be on his own with his father. Matthew 14, I'll keep running through these. We'll be done soon, don't worry. Matthew 14, verse 23. Now this is a day of days. 5,000 people, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, are fed. I don't know how you would feel if you were attempting to bring the truth of God's kingdom to people and this was the moment you had, this was the day you'd experienced I would imagine as people woke up that day, they had no idea it was going to turn into that. This is a shock to everybody concerned. And of course, we understand that 5,000 people means 5,000 men in the scriptures, not counting women and children. We're probably talking 13,000 people or so. And on this very ordinary day, something extraordinary happens. There's a boy in the crowd with some fish and some loaves. And as Jesus takes the very small and insignificant amount of food and blesses it and gives thanks and shares it and breaks it and gives it to others, this wonderful manifestation of the most incredible miracle begins to take place. And I love this story because everybody held the miracle in their hands. Because as one disciple gave the bread to another, and that disciple who's given it away gave it to another, and another, another, the miracle went from hand to hand to life to life. And the Bible says at the end of it, this glorious great day, this wonderful great day, there was 12 baskets of leftover. Why 12 baskets of leftover? Because 12 is the governance number in the scriptures. It speaks of the full governance of God, but also of that time, speaks of the 12 um, countries or places that were known in the world. God has enough bread to feed the world is the message. God has enough supply to resolve the problems of the world is the message. It's, it's a, an economic, political, but also spiritual dynamic. And if I were Jesus, I would have run around that field hiving everybody. Wouldn't you? 
I would have said to Peter, did you see that? The little boy, where is he? Get him here. Get him up here. He came out, did some shopping and changed the whole world for people in a moment. I would have run around that field talking about the miracles and how people handed the bread and what they saw. What does Jesus do? Matthew 14, 23 says, when he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. It would seem to me that Jesus' main place to live was not amongst people. His greatest priority wasn't the crowds. His orientation wasn't popularity or favor or the exploitation of a moment where something great happens. Jesus, his real default was to be on his own with his father. That is where his life made sense. That is where he connected with the source of power. That is when the reality of all that he was doing becomes facilitated and his capacity is increased to accommodate what God wants to do. I've had the great pleasure of working with Christian leaders for a long time. Um, at one point in my life, I looked, I was overseer of 135 churches and um, I used to go to these little churches, some of them little, some of them big, and uh, we chat with the pastors and the leaders and you know, they talk about their problems and the various things that they're facing. And there were two things that people felt would change everything. One was money, okay, and the other was staff or resources, as they called them. And often, you know, in these conversations, they'd say, if I only had a youth worker, if I only had a youth worker, and of course, to only have a youth worker, they need a youth worker's salary. So those two things, and I don't know what they thought. They probably thought I was Father Christmas, I'm big enough. Okay, they probably thought I was going to give them cash and give them cash. But you see, the kingdom of heaven for me doesn't work like that. Because you can have all the money in the world and not be fruitful in the kingdom of heaven. You know, in the New Testament, the church didn't have any of the resources we have. And it grew exponentially. Why? Because there was power in the lives of the believers. They walked with a clarity and a certainty about who they were before God. They had an authority that they used and utilized for the extension of God. And so I'd often say to them, you know, what do you want God to do? And they'd say, I want God to do this. I want God to do that. I'd say, well, here's what you need to do. Go and lock your room and stay there until you feel you have the breakthrough. Oh, Pastor Simon, really? Is that the best you can come up with? Yes. You see, here's the problem, church. You can't give away publicly what you've not received privately. You can't turn up on a Sunday and expect wham, bam, thank you, ma'am to happen when you haven't even been in the presence of God at all that week. And the greatest poverty we have in the Western church is prayer. Of all the things that need to change right now, we need to become a prayerful people and not talking about, you know, um, excessive, uh, outrageous, lavish prayers, just people who would rather be with God Rather commune with God, rather hear from God than hear from a thousand people. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And if you want power in the public place, you need to have solitude and silence in the private place. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has his disciples come to him and says, you know, who are you? What are you doing? It's crazy. You are crazy. You are nothing like we've seen before. How do we become like you? And Jesus says these words. You've seen the Pharisees and the scribes pray on the street corners. Be assured they already have their reward. But if you truly want to be like me, go to your room. Shut the door. See, that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Go to your room, shut the door. And what your father sees you do in private will turn up in the public place. You know why there's no authority in your life? Do you know why you're not walking in the authority of Jesus so often? It's not because you haven't been to a seminar or somebody hasn't told you how to pray for the sick. It's because we just have not lingered enough in the presence of God to carry the kabod, the weightiness of his presence on our lives. You see, when somebody who walks with Jesus turns up in a room, you can feel the atmosphere shift. 
when there's somebody who's carrying the weighty sense of God through intimacy and connectivity, they don't have to say thousands of words. They can say one sentence and something shifts and changes. We are so preoccupied with the public, we have not spent enough time on the private. Now, Jesus offers us a new life, a life that's different than the powerless life we had. Go to Mark 6. He sends out the disciples to have a go at the kingdom, instructs them to go in twos and to take very little with them, and they come back and many of them are disappointed by what they've seen. They say things like this, we tried to cast out demons, but it didn't work. We tried to pray for certain people, but it didn't work. And look what Jesus says to them in Mark 6, verse 31. This is what he offers them as an answer to the antidote of powerlessness. He says, come away by yourselves to a lonely place. Matthew 17, quickly. Going to be done in five minutes because there are rivers of living water running around my body that you wouldn't want to know about. Okay. This is a great moment in the scriptures where Jesus, from his human state, becomes visibly transformed into his glorious state. It's called the transfiguration. And he takes three of his disciples with him up on the mountain. And you know what disciples are like. They see this glorious experience of Christ in this transfigured state. And they say, let's stay here. Let's stay here. We'll build tents and we'll gather people to this purpose. And Jesus, trying to help them understand where real power and authority comes from, he says, with three of his disciples, he sought the silence. This is him telling them of a lonely mountain. In other words, he wanted to move away from the charismatic moment into the place of solitude and silence where he could be with his father. Matthew 26. You've been very patient with me. Some of you, I just have some good news for you. You've lost four pounds while we've been preaching. Because I understand that a certain percentage of your body is water, and I've watched. <laughs> so praise God to weight loss in this service. Amen. Is it supernatural or natural? I'm not sure. Come on, let's drink to that if you've got some water. Have you ever seen somebody supernaturally lose weight? Can I tell you a story? I was in a meeting once, and there was this rather mad, large man, even larger than me. I wasn't large at the time. And he came forward for prayer. And the minister, um, you know, he came, I think he had a thyroid problem and he had a whatever problem, diabetes, the usual things that people that are overweight struggle with. And the minister began to pray for him. And, and I knew the individual who was praying and I knew that he had a particular dislike to people who were overweight. Well, sorry, d dislike to being, people being overweight, not people. Okay, so he starts commanding and he starts praying. And this man loses a stone and a half supernaturally and his trousers fall down. Should we have a go next week? <laughs> Literally fell down. He's picking them up around his ankles. Thank the Lord he had really long boxer shorts underneath. It could have been horrendous, couldn't it? That put you off your dinner for the rest of the day, wouldn't it? Supernatural. God did something supernaturally. But you know, he had to live it out in the natural. You serve a powerful God. You know that, don't you? So here we are, Matthew 26. This is the pinnacle of all that Jesus came to accomplish. All the miracles point to this moment. All of the lives that have been touched arrive at this point. This is the moment of moments. When everything that Jesus by Obedience to the Father is about to take place. Let me explain some of that. I don't know how you work this out in your head, but I find this very difficult to comprehend. Firstly, because Jesus was without sin. He was fully human 
and fully God, but he was without sin. Now, he wasn't without sin because he was fully God. He was without sin because he was fully human who had submitted to the fullness of God. Can you hear me? So we can't excuse our sin saying, well, I'm not fully God and fully human. In fact, you have God living inside you. He's called the Holy Spirit. So in some senses, what Jesus modeled to us, we now have access to by the indwelling reality of the Holy Spirit. So you don't even have the excuse that you used to have. You are fully human and you fully have God living inside of you. Yes? But he never, ever, ever sinned. Is there anybody here who's never, ever, ever sinned? Of course there isn't because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a person in this room, however scrubbed up on the outside they look, that hasn't got deceit and evil and sin in their hearts. And if they haven't got it today, they had it yesterday. And if they don't have it today, they sure have it by Wednesday. We have been conditioned by our sin. We've been conditioned by the fall. We've been conditioned by our separation from God. But Jesus didn't have those experiences. Jesus was pure yet fully human. And so on this night, can you imagine with me for a second, what did it look like for Jesus to take sin, every sin that had ever been committed, every sin that was about to be committed, came upon him to such a level that the Bible says the excruciating pain of that reality was that Jesus sweat drops of blood. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in a moment like that, I would want the world to know. I would want all of my disciples to be connected to that. And here's what Jesus does. He doesn't go to his disciples. He doesn't go into the marketplace of his followers and those who are in awe of him. He finds a garden called Gethsemane. And he sits and abides and resides in the presence of his father. Jesus offers us a way of life that's contradictory to the one we imagine we can have by huge activity. He says, if you want life, you need to come away and spend it in silence and solitude with God. If you don't live from that quiet place, you will be distracted by the rat race in society. If you don't start each day with that wonderful sense of it's okay with you and God, before lunchtime you will be caught up in everybody's drama and you will not be at peace with yourself, God, or the people around you. Make solitude and silence your default and then you will find that you can live in this world untouched by the chaos but with a resolve in your heart that manifests the greatness of God. How can you hear God? in the crisis and the difficulties of life if you have not practiced hearing God in the solitude and the silence that's afforded to you? How can you be sure that you are making the right decisions whenever you're choosing this or that for your life if you haven't abided in the presence of God where you've learned to be sub submissive and complicit to that which God is speaking to you about? How could you possibly hope to have a word from heaven over a crisis and situation somebody else is facing if you have not had a word from heaven in your solitude and your silence? You cannot give hear what you have not found here. And yet, so much of our lives is lived with a powerlessness that we have become so accustomed to, we never question it. We started our meeting this morning with this story of Peter, where Jesus, through revelation, tells him he has a new identity, a new authority, and a new destiny. For you and me to live out our new identity, to understand how to move in our authority, and to fulfill our destiny, the one that God has promised us, it doesn't start in a crowd. It starts in solitude and silence, waiting in the presence of the one who knows everything about everything and can't wait to tell you something about something. 
God delights to share the secrets of his heart with those who will take a moment just to be with him. If you practice this this week, just five minutes this week, if that's more than you did last week, I guarantee you, you will feel the presence of God far more profoundly by this time next week than all the meetings you could attend and all the studies you could have been to. Because in his presence, in his presence, there is fullness of joy and life evermore at his right hand. Well, Lord, I did my best. They're looking a bit sweaty today. It's warm, isn't it? I'm going to release you now to your barbecue, your swimming pool, or just those wonderful moments when you open the fridge door <laughs> and the kingdom comes. No, the cold air comes. Can you stand for me, please? Lord Jesus, forgive us. You came that we could have relationship with you, that we could know you intimately and profoundly. You came that we would be known by you in such a profound way. We would be seen, we'd be heard, we'd be understood, Lord, and we would be valued. And yet, Lord God, our lives are so full of noise, so full of distraction. We want to justify all of our activities, and we even pretend to ourselves that somehow in our busyness, we're doing the work of God. But the work of your spirit is always found in silence. The real shaping of our inner world comes in solitude. Away from all the chaos that surrounds us, we hear your still small voice and your voice, like a whisper, has the power to transform everything. Lord, will you teach me how to abide? Will you teach me, Lord, how to give up the busyness, the chaos, and all of the distractions of my life, and to prioritize you, Lord, to seek you first, knowing that all these things will be added to me. I would love you to be my go-to, my supernatural, natural default, that any time anyone's not looking, I'd be found with you, Lord. I would love it, Lord God, that people would have to knock the door three times to get me to come out and not just pass in the corridor and suddenly I'm out shouting and helloing her out. I would love, Lord God, for my default to be like your son, Jesus. Teach us, Lord, please. Teach us the gift of solitude. Teach us the discipline of allowing space in our lives for you to speak and minister to us. And teach us, Lord, that when we're silent, we get to hear your voice more clearly. Bless us now as we choose to practice this this week. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week.